0: We are going to be in Genesis chapter 10, but before we get there, you know, I wonder, if, uh, I wonder if he had any idea the significance of the words that he said. So if you remember in the story, Jesus is hung on the cross, he's naked, he's been beaten, he's been ashamed, he's been mocked, uh, he's been crucified ultimately by uh, a mixture of the Roman um, government and the Pharisaical religious elite. And as this is happening, there, there is a very random person that's included in the story in the, in the book of Matthew. And we're not going to go there necessarily, but I just want to draw your attention to it really quickly. So in the book of Matthew, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's a very unlikely person that happens to be there, and it, it was a centurion. A centurion was a, it was a Roman guard uh, who would have been a pagan. He would have been a non-Jew, a Gentile. So probably one of the furthest people away from understanding the beauty and the reality of who Jesus really was. The last person you would think that would actually get what was going on on the cross in that very moment. And it, it's this moment where this centurion turns and he says these words in Matthew 27. Verse 54, you could jot it down and look at it later, but the, uh, it says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now you have to stop and ask yourself, how does this pagan Gentile that knows nothing of the Bible, knows nothing of the Torah, knows nothing of God's word, who who just crucified this man, this, this man that seemingly was defeated because he's dead on a cross. How is this man in this instant get it? How is it in this moment he has the light bulb comes on and he goes, surely that, I didn't mean to make that popping sound, but it was really dramatic, that was the son of God. How did he get that? If you look back three verses, Mark, or pardon me, Matthew is very intentional in in what he says here. And listen to this phrase. Right at the very instant that the centurion understood who Jesus was, something significant happened. It says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's in this instant that the centurion gets it. You say, Sam, where are you going with this? What does all this matter? It matters because I can't imagine the centurion had a clue that he was one of the first, the first, the tip of the spear, the breaking in of an entirely new thing that God was going to do because you see in the moment that the, the, the veil in the temple was torn, God's presence got out. You know, we think so often about the veil being torn. Yeah, we get to get into the presence of God. That's true. But I heard a theologian once say, and it's always stuck with me, that actually we should think about the the tearing of the veil as the presence of God escaping onto the nations. It was in that moment, that exact moment, by no coincidence, that a Gentile understood what the Pharisees and the religious elite couldn't possibly understand. And that was that this was the Son of God, because the glory of the Lord had escaped God is for the nations. He is actively pursuing the nations, as we will see this morning. Now, set that aside for a moment. I want you to think about something else here. We'll come back to that in just a moment. I want you to think about this. You know, we live, as human beings, we live in sort of two dimensions. We live in what I want to call the micro, and we live in what I want to call the macro. Um, Now, if you are a photographer, if you have any idea about photo lenses, there are things called macro lenses and micro lenses, Macro lenses are very zoomed out, big picture. Micro lenses are very zoomed in, small picture. Okay, everybody got that? Micro, macro. You with me? So as humans, we live in both of these realities. We live in the micro. Most of our daily lives are in the micro. Most of our daily lives, it's, it's the people we actually know, the experiences we actually experience, uh, the community we actually live in. It's the geography we're actually at. That's the micro. But then we also have this, this macro, it's all the stuff that you'll never experience. It's all the stuff that you never feel, never touch, never see. But you know it's there. Think about this. I just want to make your head spin for a second. The observable universe is 46 billion light years. For those of you that are wondering, that's 14 billion parsecs. Okay. In okay, case so you're like, well, what's that? Oh, a parsec. Right. I know, parsecs. Okay. Making the diameter of the observable universe about 93 billion light years, or 28 parsecs. Okay. That's really big. How much of that have you experienced? How much? I don't know about you guys. Like, I've been to a couple foreign countries. I've been to uh, this one foreign country called um, Portland one time. uh, It was crazy, like a third world. Yeah. Um, I've been to White City, Cave Junction, the ends of the earth, you know. I've been a few places, but I have not been all across the universe. So that's the macro. I live in the micro, but there's the macro. Let me give you another example. We live in a world that is populated by 7,846,000,000 human beings. How many people do you think you know? And I don't think Facebook doesn't count. Okay. How many people? Let's just say you're really popular. Let's just say you know 1,000 people. Okay. If you know 1,000 people, then that means that there's still 7,845,999,000 humans that you don't know. Uh, The Population Reference Bureau estimates that about 107 billion people have ever lived, and that's a guess, but that means there's about 100 people in the world that you can't ever know because they lived before you. There's a lot of world. Here's my point, okay? There's a lot of world out there that you don't know. There's a lot of world out there that you don't experience. And as humans, we have to sort of live in this tension between the micro and the macro. I get up every day. I have four children, and my call is to love those four children and one wife. I'm not a Mormon. One wife, okay. Um, Sorry, was that if if there's any Mormons in here? I apologize. Okay. Um, Anyways, I have the macro. That's the macro. I get up every day. I go to work. I go to one place. I drive one car. But at the same time, there's a whole world out there. And we're aware of that world, and we have to think about that world, and we have to process that world. And I think we make one of two mistakes oftentimes as Christians. We either get so sucked into our little world that we forget that there's a bigger world out there, or we get so sucked into the bigger world that we forget about our world. You ever struggle with those two things? I, I go back and forth between those all the time. Now, what I want you to see here is that God seems to have a pattern in the Bible of going between the micro and the macro in this scripture. We've been teaching through the Book of Genesis. We're only going to go to verse, or pardon me, to chapter eleven, and then we're going to take a break. But what we've seen so far is that God zooms in and out the lens. From the micro to the macro. So far, largely from Genesis 1 to 11, we've seen the macro lens. We've looked at the origin of humanity, the origin of the cosmos. We've looked at a global universal flood that drowned drowned the world. Okay, we've looked at big picture stuff, macro lens. And what we're going to look at today in chapter 10 is macro lens. But what I need you to understand is once you get to chapter 12, everything changes. The biblical focus zooms in. It zooms in from the macro lens, from the universal lens, from the humanity lens, and it zooms into one man, and his name is Abraham. And all of a sudden, it's interesting, if you're reading Genesis, this one man becomes very important, doesn't he? And all of a sudden, all of the storyline of the Bible almost entirely follows the lineage of this one man, Abraham, and his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And, and then it follows Joseph over into Egypt, and then it follows the Israelites back into the promised land. And then it follows their time becoming the theocracy into the kings Saul, Saul and, and, and David and, and Solomon. And then we continue to follow that line all the way until we get to Christ, So the Bible starts macro, but then it goes micro, okay? My point here is that God takes the micro, and he uses it to accomplish the macro. He takes the small things, and he works them all together in order to accomplish the bigger things. In the Bible, we see God keeping an eye on the big picture and a hand on the small picture. He's doing bigger things than we can imagine. But he does those big things through very small things. I could put it this way. God has his eye on the nations and his hand on the individual. He has his eye on the horizon and he has his hand on the plow. God took a seemingly unimportant young teenage girl and had her bear a seemingly unimportant human man that would have looked very average, probably a short Jewish man. Most people were shorter back then. Very unimpressive, from a very unimpressive place called Nazareth, doing a very unimpressive vocation, carpentry, in order to start the genesis of an entire new humanity, in order to save humanity. God takes the small things and he works out the big things. He takes the small picture and he works out the big picture. Even in the blessing that God told of Abraham, what was it? He said, Abraham, in you all, what? The families of the earth shall be blessed. So when you think about the Bible, I want you to think about it like this. I just really felt like doing this because this is just really soothing, actually. You should try it. Let's all do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Think about the Bible like this, okay? It, It starts wide, Adam and Eve, universal. It goes small into Abraham, and then it goes large again. God has his eye. Listen, this is serious. This is the point. God has his eye on the nations. He's always had his eye on the nations. That is his purpose. Now, this morning, we're going to look at a very, very tricky chapter. It's very, very tricky because it's literally just names. Okay? It's literally just names. It's the kind of thing that when you're doing a one-year Bible plan, you start questioning your decision at chapter 10. Okay, you start going, wow, maybe I should not do this. Maybe I should just go back to the book of John, you know, and and stop trying to read Genesis. Okay, we are going to look at what is often called by scholars the table of nations, We're going to talk about the nations. We're going to talk about the world. We're going to talk about the world that we live in. What we're looking at in Genesis 10 is the foundation of the ethnic divide that we now live in. This is the post-Noahic world, so it's the world that we live in. And what the author of Genesis is doing here, something that, that really no other ancient writer has done, is he's explaining how we got the ethnic world that we now live in. He's explaining where they all came from. And if you remember from last week, all human beings trace back to one family, Noah and Mrs. Noah. And their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What? what? Do you know her name? Then why are you laughing? What do you want to call her? Mama Noah? I don't know. Mama Noah. Everybody traces back to Mama Noah. Okay? So what the author here is doing is he's showing how uh, we go from one family that survived the flood, the global flood on the ark, into the world that the Israelites who are reading this now live in. And he does so by giving 70 particular nations. 70 in the Bible is often a number of completion. He's trying to, sh- to show a complete picture of the world that Israel basically lives in. Now, the, quite the, 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 this passage should force us to ask a particular question. And because this passage has to do with the nations, this question must have to do with the nations. And we're going to read it. Are you excited? Are you ready? I am going to read this whole thing. I thought about skipping it. I thought about reading just a couple lines and then, you know, being a wimp. But I'm going to read the whole thing. And I'm going to say some of these wrong. And you you can laugh at me if you want. But I'm just going to go for it, okay? Genesis chapter 10. God's word deserves our respect. We're going to read the whole thing. Here it goes. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togormah. Tug- the sons of Javan, I've read this thing like 12 times trying to prepare for this and I'm still failing. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim, From these, the coastland peoples spread into their their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabtica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was, note it, Babel. Erech, Akkad, Calneh, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Some of these names should be setting off bells for those of you that have read your Bible. Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezen, between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim. Pathrasim, Chalsohim, from whom the Philistines came. Does that ring a bell? And Kaphatarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lishah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. By the way, Eber is where they believe we got the name Hebrew. Okay, Eber was the father of Abraham, not the direct father, but he was in the line of Abraham, and they believe that's why we call them Hebrews, Eber. The elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber were born two sons. The name was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Al-Madad, Shalef, Hazar mo something. Jirah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, (laughs) Obal. Guys, are you are you uh, are you impressed that I'm doing this? Okay, I'm doing this for you. Okay. Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan, the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha and the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shen by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to the genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. What do you do with a passage like that? What do you do with it? why is it there? What's the purpose of it? Can't we just take it out? I mean, could it, would it have been a big deal if that didn't make it into the canon of scripture? Um, I would suggest to you it's really important. I suggest to you it's really important and it deserves our attention. That's why I read it, okay? Even though a lot of those names sound silly, um, I read it, okay? These names, by the way, would have mattered to the original audience that heard it, Okay, these names would have rung bells. These were the nations that had geographical pertinence to Israel when they read the book of Genesis, when the book of Genesis was written and read out loud to the Israelites. And what the author does is he starts with the three sons of, uh, of Noah. He starts with the nations that spread farthest from Israel, that had least relevance to Israel, and then he moves his way in until he gets to the line of Shem. Why is the line of Shem important? Anyone? The Semites, which we get Abraham, we get the Jews, the Jews come out of the line of Shem, who comes out of the line of Ham anyone Canaanites, the Canaanites come out of the line of Ham Ham now i don 't have time to get into this. I was going to get a map for you i didn 't get it, but if you want to do some research on your own, look at how this literally did populate the globe, okay, so Japheth and the Japhethites are largely where we came from it 's largely where the European area was populated both east and west. The Shemites stayed largely in the Middle East and Palestine, Um, and the Hamites moved down into Egypt, into Africa, and Iraq, and ultimately Babel, Nineveh, Syria, all of those sorts of areas. It's very interesting. If you have time, I would recommend going to John MacArthur's website. He does a whole sermon just going back and tracing each of the lineages and how they trace back to this. It's fascinating. It's fascinating, but he's way smarter than me, so we're not going to go into that kind of stuff. We do need to ask the question, though, what does the author want us to ask about this passage? It's supposed, us to, ask a, it's supposed to get us to ask a question. What is the right question to ask? And because this passage is about the nations, I believe that the, that the question we're supposed to ask is about the nations, and I believe it's this. I believe the question we're supposed to ask is, how does God view the nations? How does God view the nations? And how does he intend us to view the nations? Because we live in both the micro and the macro. We live in a big world. Almost 8 billion people. How are we to view the nations? How does God feel about the nations? So let me offer you three points. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, I believe this passage wants us to see God as the God of all humanity. It wants us to see God as the God of all humanity. And you might ask the question, why is there such a massive explosion in population here to go from Noah and his family to a worldwide covered... I mean, the, the, the population of humanity is growing quickly, and it has. It's been growing quickly. The answer is very simple. God created the world to be filled with humans. God created the world to be filled with humans. Remember in the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God said, Go forth, be fruitful, and what? Multiply. That same command was reaffirmed in the Noahic Covenant. When Noah got off the boat, God said, now go fill the earth. Why? Because God made this world for you to live in it. Did you know that? You are God's crown jewel of his creation. Now, the environmentalists get this a little bit off. They go, no, 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 we are are the enemy to this world. And I would say, no, we're the caretaker. We're the gardener. God made this world to fill it with, listen, this is important, God made this world to fill it with God-glorifying, image-bearing humanity. That was the purpose. He made the world, and then he put Adam in it, and he said, now go make babies and fill it. Fill it until it's full with people that will image me and glorify me. If that was the intention of God, to fill the earth with God-glorifying, image-bearing humanity, we've done A few of those things as humans. We have filled the earth. We do bear his image. That's why life is sacred. That's why we're drawn to human beings. That's why Hollywood's in business. Because we know human life is very valuable and it's very beautiful. So we are filling the world with his image but you know what we're not doing? We're not filling the world with his glory. That's the disconnect. That's the disconnect. So even though we are filling the world, and even though we do have all of these nations, we are not filling the world with his glory. That's the missing piece. Now, by the way, this is a sidebar here, but how, how is it that God is still sovereign when it says in the Bible that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? You might ask yourself that. Is this really God's world? Is, this really, is God really f- ruling the nations? If, it seems like Satan is ruling the nations. Well, let me offer you just a few points here. First of all, God still maintains sovereignty, yet chooses to work providentially. You may ask, what's the difference? Okay, sovereignty means he's the boss ultimately, but providentially means that he works through um, responding to the actions of others. He providentially allows people to do things, and then he works those things out for his ultimate purposes. We see this all throughout the Old Testament and the book of Esther, Remember? God uses a pagan king to marry this young girl Esther in order to posture her to save his people and preserve the line of Israel. It's amazing. God is working providentially. We see this in Cyrus the Persian. God put Cyrus the Persian in power as the one world ruling empire at the time so that he could send Zerubbabel and the Jews, we read about it in the book of Ezra, in to rebuild the temple. He put him there. He said he would put him there. He even called him by name hundreds of years prior. So God is working providentially but that doesn't mean that he is ultimately controlling every little thing. God also still holds authority to judge the nations and individuals. We see this in the flood. We see this in his judgment of Babylon or his judgment of Tyre and Sidon. So God is still ruling over the nations but you say, well then then what is Satan's rule? Because it says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one ruling the nations. And it's very simple. Listen, God... Rules in the hearts of those that worship him at this point in time. He is still sovereign. He is still all powerful. But he has, for a time, turned the title deed of this world over to the one that the world, by and large, wants to follow. And that is the enemy, for a time. He's turned it over for a time. God rules through the hearts, through the praise of those that worship him. It's called the kingdom. Okay, now that's just, just a sidebar here, but my point is very simple. God is still the God of the nations. Even though the nations have rejected him, he still maintains the position of being the God of the nations. Now you might ask yourself, if, if God's purpose in humanity was to fill it and then rule it, why didn't he just come, why doesn't he just come do that now? Why doesn't he just come force our hand? Why doesn't he just show up and say, I'm boss now. Humanity, worship me. Why doesn't he do that? He does it because he desires to rule the praise of our hearts, not through the power of his hand. He does it because he wants to rule the praise of our hearts. God loves the nations. He loves the nations. How do I know that? Well, here's a pretty popular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's heart is for the nations. 2 Peter 3.9, he's not willing that any should perish Okay, so God is pursuing the nations, but He's not pursuing the nations by force. He's pursuing the nature through the or He's pursuing the nations through their heart, through their heart. If you remember Jeremiah thirty-one, this prophecy about what was going to happen in the new covenant it says, uh, "I will put my law within them. I will write it on their what hearts." Jesus could come now. He could demand. The praise. He could demand the power. He could demand the the, the sovereignty and, and, and all of the, uh, um, yeah, all of the, the power. He could demand it now, but he doesn't do that. He chooses to go at the heart. He chooses to do it through a process of a changed heart through true worship. God will be glorified among the nations. This was God's ultimate plan. So God comes in, and rather than forcing his hand, he changes the heart. He changes the heart to worship him. I want you to see this, okay? This is so cool. When you read a passage like Genesis chapter 10, and you go, why? Why is this this, this list of the nations here? It's actually quite simple. God wants you and I to remember, he wants Israel to remember, that he did not make this world for anything other than himself. These nations belong to him. They are his nations. And not only is he sovereignly ruling over them, he's still pursuing them. All of the world is God's world. And that's why it's so significant. I opened up the beginning of this teaching by reminding you of this amazing moment when the veil was torn and the glory of God escaped and came out into the nations. The first person that was saved was a Gentile centurion. What God does is he takes the macro, he brings it into the micro, And then he brings it back out to the macro again. He brings this one person, Jesus Christ, and through this one person, Jesus Christ, he starts a movement, a gospel movement that has moved throughout the entire world. This centurion was not the last in the the, the nations to to come to worship Christ. We see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We see the book of Pentecost where all of these different languages all of a sudden are able to hear and understand the gospel. The Spirit of God was released to the nations, God has always had his eye on the nations. Okay, where am I going with this? By the way, Revelation chapter 7, you know what we see in the end? Every nation, tribe, tongue. God is gathering his people through the hearts of praise from all of the ends of the world. Now my application in this is very simple. I want to ask you, how do you view the nations? How do you view the nations? How do you think about them? Do you see them as belonging to God? Do you see God as worthy and deserving of the praise of the nations when you watch the news? Do you look at the nations and go, God, you're worthy of their praise? You're worthy of their affection. You're worthy of their attention. God, you're pursuing that nation. When you turn on the news and you see something going on in Africa, you see something going on in the Middle East, you see Kim Jong-un in North Korea, you see Putin in Russia, you hear about what's going on. Do you look at those nations and go, God, you want the praise of that country? God is a global God. And sometimes we get so focused in the micro, we miss the macro. I want to encourage us this morning as a church to be a global church. I want to encourage us this morning to remember that even though God is working in Grants Pass on G Street at the Hive at Philippi Church at 1058 in the morning on Mother's Day, God is also working right now throughout the nations. The Holy Spirit of God is throughout the world working, drawing men and women to himself every second. It's incredible. Are you tuned into that? Are you excited about that? If you feel like you're losing as a Christian, it's because you're not looking at what God's doing globally. You're not losing. Christianity may be receding to some degree in this country, but in the world, it's advancing. In Africa, in China, we are seeing millions of Christians coming to faith. In South America, and believe it or not, it's always the poor countries, the last, the least, the lost, the broken. That's where people see their need for the gospel. God is working, God is winning, God is advancing. It all started on that day at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was released. And God said to the disciples, he said, go into all nations. Starting here in Jerusalem, moving to Syria, or moving to, help me out, moving from to Judea, Samaria. That was a test, I was testing you guys. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which, by the way, is where we live. We're on the ends of the earth. We are at the ends of the earth. Like concentric circles, the gospel was to move throughout the world. God is a God of the nations, and he's saving. Let me ask you, do you see the nations as being built for the glory of God? When you look at the nations, are you jealous for them to worship God? When you look at a country that has been dealing with systemic, satanic oppression, like India, that has been being ruled, I believe, by satanic worship, through the, the polytheism and all of these gods that they've been worshipped, do you look at that nation and you go, God, I'm jealous for them to worship you because you are worthy of the praise of that 1.5 billion people in that nation. When we look at China and we think about the oppression there with Buddhism, uh, and, and all of the different the polytheistic religions there, do we look at that nation and go, God, you are worthy of the praise of that nation? When we will look at our nation, do we look at America's and say, you are worthy of the praise of this nation. We should. I should. We should. God made the nations for his glory. Are we so isolated in our own world that we forget the global focus? Now, I'm going to try to make this really practical. I want us to be a global church. I want us to be a church that says, God, we are for the nations because you are for the nations. And part of what that looks like is just being aware of what he's already doing. So right now on your phones at 10.50, you should have got a text if you're on our text software. If you're not, drop a connect card and we'll get you on there. You should have got a text that says text back yes with your address and we will get you on the mailing list for what's going on in the world. Now there's a really cool thing that's happening uh, over in uh, Albania and okay, we just prayed last week for our sister um, to go off and spend five months in Albania working with a church organization called Illyricum, and Illyricum is awesome. It's, they, they're doing all kinds of good work. Not only are they planting churches, they are starting a pastoral ministry school for pastors that want to go into the Middle East, into these hostile Islamic countries, and bring the gospel in those areas, and we want to be a significant partner in that. We wanna fly people over there and help train these pastors. My wife and I had literally bought tickets to go there right before COVID hit and we're just waiting to rebuy them, okay? Uh, We wanna be involved in what God's doing in Albania. Ryan Immel and Bree Immel, these guys are super passionate. I would encourage, Ryan, throw your hand up in the air. I didn't even tell you I was gonna do this. Doesn't even matter. These guys are super passionate about what God is doing in Albania and we as a church wanna come alongside of that. We wanna send missionaries over there. They are a first generation Christian nation that needs our support. Now, every month, Ryan and Bree package letters and send them out to people that are interested in knowing what God's doing in Albania. So I get one in my mailbox every month. So what I want you to do, if you are interested in what God is doing in the nations, I want you to text yes in response to that text with your mailing address, and Cody and I will sit down on Monday, and we will make sure Ryan gets all those addresses, and Ryan will start sending you updates on what's going on in Illyricum in in Albania. Does that sound Good. Are you guys excited about that? Okay, so you can know what God's doing in this world. Also, if you respond yes to that text, uh, I will send you a list of resources, a list of websites, a list of places that you can go to get information on what God's doing globally. Okay, and we have some specifically for you and your kids, some specifically just for you, Voice of Martyrs, different websites where you can figure out what God is doing in the nations. Guys, if we're not excited about the advancement of the gospel, it's because we're thinking too small. And that's just my point here. When I, when I sat before this text and I went, what am I going to do with this genealogy? The first thing I thought was the nations. God is a God of the nations. He's saving the nations. The gospel is advancing to the nations and we want to be part of that. Amen? Okay. Secondly, not only do we need to see God as a God of the nations, we need to see God as the source of true diversity. We need to see God as the God of true diversity. Diversity has been taken over, hasn't it? The word diversity, even me just saying that word right now, you you have some, some connotations. God invented diversity. Did you know that? The fact that every single person in this room looks different than you was God's idea. The fact that we have all these different nations with all these different languages and all these different foods and all these different flavors and colors and cultures and music styles, that's not a result of sin. That was God's idea. He made it. He's a diverse God, He invented diversity. When God told Adam and Eve to go fill the earth, I think he had in mind a diverse earth. He doubled down on it because all of the humanity was clumping together, and we'll see in Genesis 11, he kicks them out and scatters the languages. He wanted a diverse globe. He loves that we have diversity in our cultures. He is a God of, good, of diversity. He invented it. In Revelation chapter 7 Verse 9, in the end, it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Now, what do you think? Do you think they're crying out in their own language? I think so. Is it disjointed? Is it not united? No. They're saying the same thing, but they're saying it in their own languages. What happened in Pentecost? Pentecost. They were hearing the gospel, but they were hearing it in their own languages. God has given you and your culture a unique blueprint, and that will come with you, I believe, into the heavens. My wife and I had the privilege of going to this conference in Florida a couple of years ago before we planted this church. It was a global conference uh, for the X29 network. And it was so cool because there were more pastors from other countries there than there were from, from America. I mean, there were pastors from Africa, pastors and their wives, ministry leaders from, from the Middle East and from Asia and from all over the place. And they made the worship team um, a diverse group. So they had songs in Spanish. They had songs in, in African. They had songs from from Kenya and, and Ethiopia and songs. It was so Beautiful, And I just remember at one point, just goosebumps looking around a thousand people singing a language they don't even know that glorified God, and I had goosebumps. And I just looked over at my wife and I'm thinking like, "This is what heaven's going to be like." Not a bunch of white people sitting around singing English. It's a bunch of everybody sit- sitting around singing in all kinds of languages to the glory of God. God invented diversity. He did it. Now here's a side note, and this one might get me in trouble. We need to take diversity back. Diversity has become a cloak for secular people to say that we should accept sinful behavior. That's not what I mean by diversity. Diversity does not mean that we don't view homosexuality as sin. Diversity does not mean that we don't view someone um, changing their gender as a sin. That is not what I mean by diversity. Diversity is only diversity when it is truly under the reign of God's d- design. God made differences, and they're beautiful. Okay, that's just a side note. I need to say that, because when someone says diversity, you know what they mean, right? They mean something very different. God is a God of diversity. Number three, we need to see God as the God of all glory. We need to see God as the God of all glory, now, as we look at this list of names, as we look at this list of countries, it's important to recognize that not only did God um, have his eye on all these nations, that he loves all these nations, but you also need to recognize that God gave this list to Israel to identify the enemies of Israel. They stand out like a sore thumb. Egypt, Canaan, Babel, Assyria, Nineveh. These, the Philistines, these countries were at war with Israel They ultimately hated Yahweh. They hated the country of Israel. Now, there's two sides to this coin. There's two sides to this coin. One side is that God is going to save the nations. But when I say that, I'm not preaching universalism. I'm not preaching that all people of of the world will come and stand before the king and accept him as the king. That's actually not true. If you read the end of your Bible, what you'll find is, is that there will be a people that will worship God and accept him as king, and there will be another people that will unite, and they will rally. And you know what they'll rally around? Rebellion against the king. They will fight, and they will war against Jesus. And there's just one little thing I want you to see in the text. It's quite interesting. There's a man in this line that we read named Nimrod. I don't know why, by the way, Nimrod became the universal word for an idiot. I don't know where that came from. But here... This man, Nimrod, which, by the way, means rebellious. This man, Nimrod, was the founder of what? Anybody? Babel. say, what is Babel? Well, Babel was a nation. We'll read about it in chapter 11. It was a nation that ultimately set its mind against God. And it says, uh, particularly, they were building a tower. We'll see this next week. They were building a tower for the purpose of their own glory. And as you read the Bible, you see that the word Babel and the nation Babylon, which was the Greek word for Babel, ultimately becomes the archetypical enemy of God. It becomes a symbol for anyone that is against the glory of God. In the book of Revelation, we find a final battle. And that final battle becomes New Jerusalem and the new king, the Lamb, the lion and the lamb versus Babylon. So who is this Nimrod? and What's the deal with Babel? Why is it here in the list? And why does the author mention it? I would suggest to you because the author wants you to ask a very simple question. Okay, he wants you to see that there's two sides to the nations. And he wants you to ask a very simple question. Which side are you on? What divides the two sides? What do you live for? The glory of the nations or the glory of God? That's the very simple divide. There is a division here that is, needs to be seen. And spoiler alert, at the end of the Bible, Babylon falls to New Jerusalem. The king wins. Jesus wins. Babylon falls. Here, Nimrod is a reminder for us of the genealogy and the lineage of those that live for themselves versus Abraham's lineage, those that live by faith. And he wants us to choose. Okay? Just want you to see that. So, lastly, so what, Sam? What do I do with all that? just a couple of things here. Doesn't it feel a little contradictory that God is both for the nations, yet at some point God will have to go to war with the nations? How do those two things work together? I want to suggest this phrase to you that I love. And some of you that are not theologians, uh, you'll not know what I'm talking about this and that's okay. Uh, but I want you, I want you to think about this. Live like an Arminian and sleep like a Calvinist. Okay, the reality is we don't know who in the nations are the lords and who are not. We don't know who at the end will war against Christ and who will actually belong to him. We don't know. And so for that reason, we don't look at the nations with anything but hope that God would save people out of those nations. Okay? So I would just suggest that to you. The wheat and the tares, they look the same from the outside, but we reach them all. Secondly, I would encourage you to look at the nations with an eye on the globe and a hand on the plow, okay? I would, I would suggest that you look at the nations with an eye on the globe and a hand on the plow. What I mean by that is, is think about what God's doing globally, but don't forget that God works through the small things, and he works through the things that you're doing right now, they matter. What Christians do sometimes is they, they make the mistake of being so globally minded that they forget that getting up and changing the diaper of their kid that morning is missions. And this is fitting for Mother's Day, okay? It's all missions. God works through the small things and the big things and oftentimes the big things he works are through the small things. And lastly, consider the nations with tears of joy for the kingdom and tears of sadness for the lost. And what I mean by that is that we should be rejoicing in the advancing of the kingdom throughout the world. Simultaneously, we should be so heartbroken over all those that yet do not live for the glory of God. There are still so many people in this world that are not living for the glory of God. I would encourage you to tune in to what God's doing. And remember this centurion, okay? When you turn on the news and you hear about the nations and you hear about Russia and you hear about Iran and you hear about our country, I want you to remember this centurion. I want you to remember the fact that the veil has been torn and the glory of God is waiting to go into the nations. And I want you to remember that it is the least likely person that often comes to have belief in the Son of God. No one was thinking at this moment the centurion was going to be the one to get it. And he was. And I want you to remember that you are the instrument that he wants to use to save the nations. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage. As hard as it is, as tricky as it is, Lord, it's a very simple reminder that God, you are a God that is working. You're working through the nations and you want to save the nations through us. You've made us your vessels, your ambassadors of grace, your missionaries. Lord, I thank you that I'm part of a church that cares so deeply for the gospel. Thank you that I'm part of this this body that just cares so much about what you're doing. And Lord, would you activate us as a church family to a greater degree in what you're doing across the globe? Lord, as we're just this brand new baby church just trying to figure out where to invest our resources, God, would would you make us small but mighty? Lord, may we just send out missionaries all over the place. I even think of just Calise going down this summer to, to Mexico. I think of Abby going off to Albania. Lord, we just want more, more sending for your glory. We want to see the nations worshiping you. God, we thank you that we're on your side. And we just pray, Lord, that whenever we read Genesis 10, we would always remember that you are a God of the nations. Lord, use us. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.